years ago this summer, Lisa and I, Lisa and I joined uh, the staff of the ministry that was then called Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. This was 1995. Some of you might remember 1995. Uh, it seems like yesterday to me, but little did I know that Matt Colt, our youth pastor, whom I work with, was one year old in 1995. How on earth that happened, I don't know. But in 1995, not only did Toy Story come out for the first time, but there was a book that was released that some of you remember well called Left Behind. And Left Behind was a fictional account of the return of Christ, and it took America by storm. It was a major bestseller. I read all of them. We can address all that later. But that series echoed much of the thought in and around the world regarding the return of Jesus to this earth in such a way that people were, and many still are, completely fascinated by the subject of rightly so. Well, when Lisa and I, the very, very first day that we were at new staff training with Campus Crusade for Christ, a man stood up to speak to all of the new staff members, and he talked about the power of sharing the gospel And the need for new laborers to come and be equipped to know how to take our faith all over the world. And we all said, amen, that's what we had signed up for. But then he said, he said, I fully believe that Jesus will return to this earth in my lifetime. And I remember very, very much thinking, oh, I bet he's right. I've been reading Left Behind. I've been hearing all this stuff my whole life. I bet that's exactly what's going to happen. And if you're also old enough to remember, Y2K was right around the corner. And we all assumed Jesus was going to come back before the year 2000. Now, I'm not sure if that man is still alive or not. So technically, maybe he was right. But it does present a problem. How do we live as we wait for Jesus to return? What do we do now? What do we do as we wait? Literally, the church has been asking this question ever since Jesus ascended into heaven. Ever since he came the first time, we've been curious about what to do with him coming the second time. And that's the subject of our text this morning. So I encourage you to look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 as we'll be back and forth a bit this morning. As we have seen uh, the summers, I've been preaching through uh, just a big picture from 1 Thessalonians We see here that Paul is very, very happy. He's encouraged with the faith of this young church. These folks had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they had believed. Their sins were removed by Jesus' death. And by faith in him, they were given the Holy Spirit. And they were growing and Paul was happy. Their faith was proven genuine by the reality of God's word. Their suffering was drawing them closer to the Lord. And there was celebration of faith. But as we saw last week, the issue for them is that they were so concerned about the coming of Christ that they had kind of dropped everything else in their life other than being preoccupied about when Jesus was going to return. They were so excited about this wonderful promise that they weren't really doing anything else in life. And that's when Paul had to tell them, no, 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 you go about your daily life. You go about being a citizen as you wait. So for us, 2,000 years later, I think the question still persists. What are we supposed to be doing as we wait for Christ to return? How are we to think about the second advent? 
How are our lives to be impacted upon the promise that Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth? So from our passage today, I want to see two things. First, the return of Christ gives us truth, but not details. And secondly, the return of Christ gives us comfort, not confusion. So it gives us truth, but not details. gives us comfort, but not confusion. My prayer for us this week is that God would shape our lives as we wait for him to return. All right, first, see the truths of the coming of Christ. Look back at chapter 5, verse 1. This is so great, so very clear. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Paul makes it very, very clear that these folks do not need to have anything new written on this subject. That means clearly they were very curious about when this was going to happen. It was as if they were waiting for Christ to come any single moment. And Paul said to them that they were fully aware, which meant all that Paul had told them already is all that he is going to tell them. Probably because that's all that Paul knew. We see from Matthew chapter 24 that even Jesus does not know when he is going to return. If Jesus does not know when he's going to return, then certainly Augustine or Calvin or even Tim Keller, who knows everything, does not know when Jesus is going to return. What Paul knew was that whatever the Lord had given him, and that was some truths in order for them to shape their life, was enough. Including that Jesus Christ will return to this earth As the universal king and that no kingdom will rival him at all. Yet there is still enough truth for us to put our faith in this promise. You know, just as a side note, as I thought about this and studied this past week. It seems like end times and creation are similar. We have so many more questions than what the Bible addresses. And yet the Bible gives us all we need to know to believe. Paul is saying, you have all that you need to know to live by faith. But make no mistake about it, the day of the Lord is the day that all of human history awaits. The day when Jesus returns will not be like any other day. You need to know that our church and our denomination fully believe that Jesus Christ is on his throne in heaven right now and he will return here to this earth in bodily form. As we often recite with the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So what are some of these truths that we see here from this passage? I want to mention three things that that we can build our lives upon that are truths, even though we don't have all of the details. They're either directly mentioned here or they're inferred here in this passage and then seen throughout the rest of Scripture. First thing is that the day of the Lord, there will be a physical resurrection of the dead. A physical resurrection. Chapter 4, verse 13. Paul is very clear about those who are, quote, asleep. Asleep was a common metaphor for death in his day. 
The term was used to describe the state of souls of those people who are no longer here with us, but yet they are aware of their position as they await Christ to return. The day of the Lord will see a return of all of those who died before Christ returns. And as we see throughout this section, this resurrection of the dead will be for those who are followers of Jesus and for those who are not. Christians and non-Christians alike will return to their state. Paul uh, uh, specifically discusses this in Acts chapter 24. Robert will get there later this year or next year. But this belief is rooted, of course, in the fact that Jesus himself, who is fully God and fully man, is that he has already rose from the dead. He was first, and now all of humanity who come after him will rise from the dead. This resurrection of all souls will be personal, it will be physical, and it will be literal. Death is not final. So for all of us this morning, believers and unbelievers alike, this is our destiny. If Christ's return is not soon, we all will pass away and we will be asleep and we will wait for him to return. And then we will rise with him. So first, there will be a resurrection. But secondly, the day of the Lord will be a time of judgment, a time of final judgment. So just as all of the bodies will rise again, there will be a final judgment for their futures. As we read in chapter 5, Paul makes it clear that there are two groups of people who exist on this earth. Those who will be surprised by Jesus' return and those who will not be. If you've been around church very long, you've probably heard the comparison of Christ's return as something like a thief in the night. And again, the picture here is meant to describe something that will be a total shock. Meaning for those who do not believe in Jesus, this day will come with total suddenness and will interrupt their lives. It will be terrifying beyond imagination. And the image is of sudden fear that is outrageous, completely terrifying. You know, oftentimes, uh, Lisa's and my Saturday Night Entertainment is the TV show on CBS, 48 Hours. I don't know if any of y'all watch that. I've fallen asleep in it many times. But what usually happens in that show is that there is a break-in into a house and a crime is committed. And it happens in the middle of the night where somebody breaks into the home. Several times I've watched the end of that show and I go back through all of our house making sure all the doors are locked. Because the idea of somebody breaking in the middle of the night... It's terrifying. And that's the picture here. But not for the people of God. Because as truth, this day is to be built inside of our spiritual DNA. It's something that we talk about. It's something that we think about. It's something that we pass down to our children. It's something that we anticipate and long for and pray for. But for those who do not care about God's kingdom, those who do not believe that Jesus is their Messiah, those who have no issue with evil, who can care less about sin, who love creation but not the creator, those who see no need for their personal sin to be forgiven and have no interest in the love that Jesus gives, according to chapter 5 verse 9, this day will not be a day of wrath for the people of Christ. 
meaning it will be for those who do not know him. See, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is used throughout Scripture, including the Old Testament, where there will be a public and swift day of destruction. If you've studied much of church history, this will be similar to when Jerusalem was attacked in 70 AD. There was no peace treaty. There was no truce. There was no compromise. It was final. Jesus' return, it will be awful judgment upon his enemies. And it will be a day of blessedness like we could never imagine for the people of God. So we see the resurrection, we see a judgment. But thirdly... The day of the Lord will bring a whole new reality to this earth. That is what scripture says elsewhere, a new heavens and a new earth will come. Again, though not specifically talked about here in this passage, this is alluded to in chapter 4 when Jesus says, or when Paul says that Jesus will bring with him all those who are asleep. You see, this glorious day will include not only the resurrection of the souls and not only the judgment, but the heavens and the earth will somehow magnificently and mysteriously come together as one. And it will be perfect. When Christ returns, the curse of sin, the fallenness of this world, what we read about in Revelation 21, it will be true. The curse that affects every single part of our life will be lifted. It will be removed. It will no longer exist. So this morning, just imagine, if you will, a world world where there is no death, where there is no injustice, where there is no sickness, no anxiety, no depression, no cancer, no grudges, no jealousy, no people-pleasing. No inferiority complexes, no fear of the future, no financial trouble. The list goes on and on and on. That's the new reality that Jesus will bring with him. Just life. Enjoying the presence of a powerful and loving king who loves us perfectly, who protects us perfectly. And we are doing our calling without conflict, without complaint, and in perfect community with one another. Can you imagine that? I don't know about for you, but for me, this causes my imagination to go crazy and longing for this day. Uh, This past week, I I saw kind of an interesting movie. Uh, Maybe you've seen it or heard of it. It's called Yesterday. It's a fictional account as if uh, the Beatles had never existed and none of their songs had ever been heard. It's kind of silly, I guess, when I tell the story. But this man had an accident. He was run over by a bus and he dreamed all the Beatles songs and he became world famous. Don't go see it. It's not that great. But there was a John Lennon figure in the movie. And he was kind of this old wise sage talking about life. And as I was thinking about this passage and I saw this movie, thinking about the Beatles this week, it reminded me of of his song, Imagine. Imagine that there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. As I thought about that, even though he sings that song so incredibly well, that's a terrible song. I don't want to imagine that there's no heaven. I want to imagine that heaven is coming and it's greater than anything we could ever hope for. You see, we don't know the details, 
But the day of the Lord will change everything in ways beyond our comprehension, too great to even imagine. People of God, this is our destiny. This is what is true for us in Christ. Do you believe this? That's what this passage is begging us to do, to believe that it's true, to build your life upon it. So if you do believe it, how does what we believe affect what we do? See, point two here. Jesus' return gives comfort, not confusion. Again, the issue here, what Paul seems to be shouting as he wrote this, is that since we do not know when Christ will return, we're not to be caught up in guessing when it will be. Rather, we are about to be living a particular way because our souls are now so convinced that he will, in fact, return. If you're not a believer in Christ, then then here this morning, I urge you to hear these words of Scripture and to see the loss that is yours if you are apart from Christ. Hear again Paul's words of description of of completely being oblivious to the coming of the day of the Lord. Hear again Christ's plea, come and follow me. But if you are a follower of Christ this morning, then hear these words and see these words of what our lives are to be about now. And the overwhelming issue at hand is the reality that our lives are completely different as we wait. See first how our lives are different with our attitudes. See, every day, you and I are to operate in light of knowing that Jesus is going to return and his kingdom will be eternal. I think this is highlighted beautifully in verse 8 of chapter 5. Paul uses three words here, which he uses in other places as well. They are faith, hope, and love. These are the words to describe the ethos of followers of Jesus today. Our lives and our churches. People who live by faith are people who don't understand the details of the future, but yet we are content knowing that Christ does. Just as we came to know him by faith, we also live every day by faith. We are people of hope. We are those who truly believe that Jesus is at work this morning. Even today, he is doing what we could never do in and of ourselves. We have tasted his goodness in the past, and so we know that there is nothing impossible for him to do. We can hope for all things in his kingdom. Our hope is in Christ's return, and that fuels our lives today. Our hope energizes us in knowing that his salvation has begun and it will someday be perfect. You cannot replace hope. You can't take hope away. We have faith, we have hope, but also we are people of love. And Paul will never let us forget this. As we collectively wait for Jesus' return, we are to love each other and love each other well. Paul does not say that we're to tolerate each other. He does not say that we're to go along to get along. He says that we are to love. It requires no money to love each other. You can love your enemies through his spirit by asking God to give you a heart for all people. To love is to want God to bless people in unique ways beyond what you could ever do in and of yourselves. 
Even though they are sinners and they don't deserve it, you can love them in Christ. To love is to treat others as Christ has treated us. As I prayed and thought about this passage this week, I was just overwhelmed with the thought of, may this begin inside of each of our hearts. And may this love spill out into our homes and our churches and our neighborhoods. Please see, Christ is returning for us all. What that means is we're all going to be together for eternity. We're going to love each other then. We might as well start loving each other now. Faith, hope, and love. These are the marks of people who believe in the second coming. These are the traits of those who cry, come Lord Jesus. Not trying to figure out the day, but living in light of the fact we know he's coming. But there's more than just that. One more thing, and it reveals both our need and our duty. We see what this action is all about, and it's very, very clear. The last verse in chapter 4, chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 11, we see the same term repeated, the same instruction repeated. He emphasizes one point twice. And he says, encourage each other. That is, exhort each other to believe that this truth brings joy. This is the application of the return of Christ. Either when friends or family have passed away and the sorrow and the the grief exists, encourage them that it is not final. Or when friends and family are persevering in this life and it's difficult, encourage them that Christ is going to return. This is not final. We all have a need to be reminded Jesus is coming back and he is bringing his salvation with him. Why do we need to hear this? You know the reason why. It's because this world really is under a curse. We really do have hurt and pain and frustration. You know that every Christian on this earth has one need today. We all need to be encouraged by the reality of the gospel. And it's not just particular personality types. It's that if you exist and you're waiting on Christ, you need to be encouraged that it really is true, that he really is coming back. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to come along and remind us that Jesus has not forgotten us. I know it may feel like it sometimes, but it's not true. Jesus has not forgotten us. I know that your struggles may be hard. They may be bitter. I know that life may not be easy today. But remember, Jesus has already come for you once. He has sent his spirit to you. He has given you a family. He has given you a church. And your destiny is to be with him forever. So don't give up. Don't give up your hope. Don't quit trusting. God is doing more than you could ever imagine. Again, I ask you this morning to look around this room and to see a group of people whom you are called to love who are desperately in need of your encouragement today. Who can you encourage this morning and remind them that Jesus is returning? We're all in need and that is our duty. That's our responsibility, knowing that Jesus is coming back. So church, be comforted this morning. Jesus said he's coming back and he will. When will Christ return? He'll return when his father sends him. 
And until then, we will live in praise of him, his righteousness, and his kingdom. So now let's come and feast with him as we wait on this very thing. Let's pray now and prepare our hearts to come to the communion table. Father, as we think about your promises, as we think about the reality that you did in fact say that you are going to return and that there will be this day of the Lord. Oh, Father, our hearts are grateful. And Lord, our hearts are hungry. They are hungry for you. They are hungry to know you, to trust you, to believe in you. And Father, as we uh, come to your table now this morning, we ask as we do every week, would you feed our souls on your promises? We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.